Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Dirk Schroeder, and uh, I'm really pleased to be moderating this uh, exciting panel on uh, telehealth and virtual care and international perspective. <clears throat> Accompanying me on the panel um, are two uh, world-renowned colleagues, uh, Dr. Jefferson Fernandez, who's a uh, Brazilian neurologist by training. Uh, he also is uh, very active in the telehealth and telemedicine uh, ecosystem. He's the vice president of the Brazilian Association of Telemedicine and Telehealth, as well as a director of telemedicine uh, education program in Sao Paulo. And he'll tell you some additional information about himself. He'll be the first presenter today. I also have uh, Dr. Uh, Pat Quinlan uh, with us today. He is the CEO of Hippo Technologies. He's also the CEO emeritus of the Ochsner Healthcare System, the largest healthcare system in Louisiana. Um, we will uh, uh, spend some time with you today talking about the international uh, ecosystem of telehealth and virtual care. Uh, each of us is going to take about five minutes uh, to give an overview from our perspective, and then we're going to save about half of the, uh, the time for a, uh, we hope, really uh, interesting and deep discussion about how we can accelerate um, scaling up of telehealth and virtual care uh, uh, globally. So with that, I'll pass uh, things over to Dr. Fernandez, uh, please take it away, thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Dirk, for the introduction uh, and thank you for the organizers of this uh, meeting to invite me to participate here. Just to add in my activities, professional activities, I'm also the director of the education program of the International Society for Telemedicine and e-health. And uh, I have my approach will tell in three main items uh, regarding a framework of the perspectives of telehealth and virtual care. Challenge for any country is the integration of digital health in the health system. The legislation regulation, sometimes going back, sometimes going forth. And finally, training and skills in digital health for health professionals. Uh, we know that we have uh, huge challenges in health as inefficient use of information, fragmented care, usually care is in silos, duplication, duplication and waste, and also the protected adoption of uh, innovation. And uh, we have to understand that any solution that we provide in digital care or telemedicine or telehealth that are part of the digital healthcare system, we, it, it should uh, be integrated into the healthcare ecosystem to understand the needs and the pain of the system and then try to bring solutions that are relevant for the system and being relevant for the system means that it should be relevant to the citizens as well. Telemedicine telehealth are within this uh, digital health system and it should also follow the same path. Uh, telemedicine and telehealth uh, have a lot of application. We can go from uh, promotion of health, primary secondary prevention, screening of patients, diagnosis, therapeutic interventions, rehabilitation, monitoring of patients and management of chronic patients. And the best way to do all this is uh, looking at the continuity of healthcare. And I'm gonna talk about this in a few moments. But of course, vital care also involves education, research and the management of the health systems. 
uh, going back to the continuity of healthcare, we should take into account the patient's journey. And we as individuals, we have all these different uh, aspects, the promotion of health, health living, as said before, prevention, diagnosis, treatment, and the care at our home. And the collective care can be in several instances of all this uh, journey to help uh, to uh, bring more quality uh, to this health system. Uh, acting in and around the patient's lives to provide care whenever possible, when, where, and how they need and want. This is something uh, very important. So this is one of the directions that uh, the people care is going, going to the safe and comfortable place of uh, people's house. And when I said whenever possible is because we have to learn not only the benefits of telehealth, and virtual care, but also its limitations. So we should know when a teleconsultation should be transformed in a face-to-face -face one, when we need uh, more information or the patient is not in the circumstances or uh, have some problem that is not uh, adequate to do it uh, by an online platform. And of course, uh, we should practice uh, telehealth that responsible. What do I mean by responsible? With ethics, with quality, and with safety. So we should take account the legislation and regulations that vary among countries. And even within uh, some countries who have different states such as the USA who have different approaches and regulation. Of course, the pandemic has changed that and we might discuss this uh, during our, the other session, the discussion sessions. But so many times the physicians of the health professions get some confused uh, because, well, how do I practice uh, you know, responsible telemedicine or responsible telehealth? Telehealth is not a tool. Tool is the hardware, is the software. Telehealth is a method, and as such, it should be learned. So training and education for physicians and all, for all health life professionals is very, very important. Uh, we have to uh, evaluate different aspects of the teleconsultation, for instance, such as the relation, uh, physician-patient relationship of health professional-patient relationship, how to provide uh, confidence, how to be uh, you know, bringing humanity to this relationship, and also all the aspects that regards the technology, legislation, and so on. Uh, in the international side, we have this new education program, which I was honored to be the director, that we tried to uh, bring uh, internationally at several opportunities for people to learn together with several other uh, organizations, uh, such as we having here in this meeting, opportunities to learn, opportunities to share experience, and also to share visions. In my view, the professional certificate, certification is something that we, you should follow. No? It could be a general certification in telehealth, could be in mental health, could be also in primary care, but this is important for all professionals to learn more about how to practice it uh, with responsibility. And of course, the programs and services will be helped if they also pursue some kind of accreditation, external validation that uh, brings the knowledge to people that uh, these services or this program uh, is being evaluated from an uh, outside source and is something that uh, uh, is, uh, uh, has the credibility uh, to provide uh, safety and quality of care. So these are my specific 
points I would like to, to make uh, so we could discuss more about them uh, after all presentations. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Jefferson. That was an excellent overview of the, the telehealth and, and virtual care and education. And I thank you for that. You're a real leader in the field. So um, I'm going to uh, continue uh, our presentation section of the, uh, of the panel now uh, with a few slides. So as I said, uh, Dr. Fernandez gave us a nice overview of the, the value of, of, of virtual care and telehealth and tele telemedicine. Um, what I'm gonna be doing now in this next section is really focusing in on how we can move uh, these promising and exciting technologies to scale. And I'll particularly focus on uh, the, the lower income and middle income countries um, in, in uh, Southeast Asia, Latin America, and Africa. Um, just uh, some, some orientation. I uh, personally co-founded a digital health company focused on Hispanics called Ola Doctor, uh, which was acquired a few years ago. And I'm currently managing director of the Advancing Health Innovation in Africa program at Emory. So uh, this is a, a, an area I feel very passionate about. So as Dr. Fernandez says, I, I think you know anybody uh, participating in this conference has a good understanding of the value and benefits of, uh, of, of telehealth and virtual care. Uh, just to summarize them one more time, uh, these are really optimal technologies for enhancing care coordination, improving clinical outcomes, enhancing the consumer experience, improving efficiencies, and expanding consumer and clinical access. And in part, I'm putting this up here now because this is really what many of us are familiar with uh, from in the US, Canada, and Europe. I'm going to look now um, at how telehealth and, and digital health uh, is being used and the promise for it um, for, for less uh, developed situations. So in low and middle income countries, digital health really has tremendous potential. It's been recognized as such. Uh, and in part, um, it really has the uh, potential to fill in some gaps that are unfortunately still in place in uh, many less developed uh, economies. So this, for example, is looking at uh, digital health may uh, be able to overcome some constrictions around poor adherence to guidelines. Uh, insufficient su supply of qualified health workers is a very um, serious issue. There can be just a few or a handful of specialists in, in, in the whole countries. And Pat, uh, Dr. Quinlan is going to talk some more about that. Prior to the pandemic, uh, there were some real uh, shining stars in the digital health arena in, in less developed countries. Uh, this is just one of many examples. They had Kahimi in Pakistan. Uh, this is a network of all female physicians caring for uh, lower and middle income uh, uh, consumers throughout the country um, and really was, had, had been building already a, a really fantastic platform. Uh, COVID-19, of course, uh, really accelerated the utilization of telehealth and digital health. Uh, this is a recent graph from, um, from McKinsey which shows the big spike in April of 2020, which we're all familiar with. And then we knew that things would come down and soften. Uh, I think it's very interesting that really in the US at least, this utilization has remained at a, at a pretty stable level, about 40% of people regularly using digital health. That spike of course occurred in other countries as well. This is a, a, a great new uh, study from Willis uh, Towers Watson 
which shows a percentage of in insured members that use telehealth for primary care uh, physicians. So in Latin America, that went from 5% using it on a monthly basis to over 50%. So this was, again, similar to uh, other areas of the world, uh, huge increases in the utilization of uh, telehealth and digital health. So the question is, is how can we build on this success? Unfortunate, uh, for the reasons, unfortunate, of course, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, but we sort of were accelerated in this intervention. Um, and, and the path forward, I, I will say, is uh, not totally clear and not necessarily easy. So that's what we're gonna talk about a bit on the panel today. Um, I will say there are a number of groups, international and global groups working on this. Uh, this is a, a great report from the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation on building a global framework. Uh, essentially, the, the idea is we have these technologies that have been proven in other countries in the US, Canada, Europe, and elsewhere, Asia. Um, how can we get these into lower and middle income countries sort of most quickly? Um, a lot of these are working well. Uh, uh, the, the strategies and the framework though really has a number of pieces. Regulatory, Dr. Fernandez touched on some of these, regulatory technology and some others. What I wanna do next is look a little deeper at what is the specific barriers and which might we uh, be able to overcome most quickly. So for example, um, all international bodies understand that uh, there needs to be some sort of national policy around e-health and digital health. This is a map of the countries in dark blue that have such a policy. So this is sort of number one priority. Uh, we need to you know, encourage these governments to uh, sort of get serious about this. There's, there's still a long way to go. Um, there are a recent review article looking at telemedicine use in Sub-Saharan Africa and the specific barriers and policy recommendations around um, scaling that up uh, beyond the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, identified five clusters of barriers. Technology barriers, uh, poor quality internet, organizational barriers, lack of expertise and training, kind of things that Dr. Fernandez just talked about, lack of national guidelines, individual, uh, doctors feeling a bit threatened by, um, by, by this and, and maybe a lack of control over patient management. Financial and the costs, and we'll take a look at this, and, and also cultural barriers. So I think these, there's long lists of these kinds of barriers. I think, again, the key thing here is let's identify the ones that we can sort of start knocking off and, uh, and do something about. Uh, these lists of uh, barriers and sort of the challenges are very similar, I'll say. Uh, that was in Sub-Saharan Africa, but very similar to the, to the list that um, some colleagues and I identified in Latin America and recently published in the Journal of Telehealth and Medicine today, uh, which is a, a coordinator of this conference. So just to drill down again at a couple of these barriers and, and take a look at where we might see some opportunity uh, to, to, to overcome them. Uh, first of all, technology. Um, unfortunately, there's you know, still a ways to go uh, with making the internet available to, uh, throughout the world. Um, the good thing I would say it's a little bit complicated, but mobile internet is really the key to uh, getting the world online and, and making telehealth and virtual care available to the entire global population. Uh, today, uh, just over half of the world has access to mobile internet, 51%. Um, in, the, in the gray here is the people that are living in places that don't, that don't have, or that doesn't have mobile internet coverage. So that's really gone down. This group here in the, in the dark yellow and the orange uh, really is the important group. So these people are living in places that have access to mobile internet. They could have it if they had a smartphone, but they aren't online. 
so the question is why? The key barriers or the key reasons why people are not using it really come down to two. One is the lack of awareness and understanding of the benefits of mobile internet. And the second is affordability. So this in a very a number of research studies have identified sort of the two main areas. Um, and I would say that both of these are something we could do something about. And we'll talk about that during the discussion. I'll end by saying that uh, I think on a very positive sort of uh, glass half full way, there's a tremendous amount of investment going into digital health. Uh, this is uh, uh, investments in digital health in the US. Um, the COVID-19, uh, of course, uh, hyper supercharged funding activity in this area. Already in 2021, we've surpassed the amount of uh, in, uh, investment uh, as all of last year. Um, so this is big uh, in less developed and uh, middle income countries. Uh, there's a lot of activity, uh, a lot of uh, investment in uh, impact investing, um, a lot of public private partnerships, uh, and even USAID and sort of traditional um, philanthropists and, and donor agencies are recognizing the benefits of social enterprise and partnerships that accelerate these technologies. Uh, and I'll just end by a little word of caution. Uh, this is from the, the UNDP, which says that, you know, I think especially in some of these countries where we're investing in growing uh, virtual care, there's the risk of, of uh, uh, widening the digital divide, leaving, leaving large groups of people behind. So as we uh, build these inclusive, vibrant, and culturally tailored digital health systems, um, I think we can uh, keep that in mind and, and, and uh, in be inclusive which is really gonna benefit the whole system uh, down the road. So I will uh, leave it there. Um, uh, the, you'll, this is my information and the resources and reports and papers that I referenced uh, today, uh, I'll post to, to, my, um, to my website and they'll be available for free and for download uh, if you have any questions or would like to get a hold of them. So with that, I'll uh, stop my comments and I will pass the baton to Dr. Quinlan. I will bring up your... Uh, slides, uh, Pat, here. Sure. Um, thank, thanks so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'll, I'll have a complimentary view of what we're talking about. And I'd like to begin with the context of, of, of what I hope to share with you. Um, it's basically a focus on the end user first, that uh, much of what happens today is we talk about technology and then how it begins to filter down and come to the end user. And Often end users are saddled with something they can tolerate rather than something they want and desire uh, that helps them practice the way they would like or help the way they would like. So we started with that, with that premise and then work up. And my approach to that was based on the fact I started as a solo practitioner in, in uh, rural America and ended up as a CEO of a 40 hospital system with um, typical integrated assist system that takes care of large populations. And it's with that population health approach that I take this and in the early 90s, I started one of the early teledermatology programs and learned a lot about the real power of this is not so much as providing answers as it is providing teamwork and upskilling the, 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 the mentee and developing close relationships between the people who together give the care who may not be there in person, but you can develop relationships that can be often closer than they were if you were in person. So that is to me the glue of great medicine is how do you build professional capabilities that become, that grow and become sustainable in the process? And to do that, we take a different approach, which quite often we start with the technology. Instead we say, 
what use case are you focusing on? What problem are you trying to solve? And then what could you aspire to if you could do it differently? And in the process, understand the inventory of assets that happen to be present that may not be accessible because of the way we do things now, but how do we unlock the potential of these assets? Dirk talks about low and middle income countries. They have assets, but often they aren't accessible to the people who need it most. So we've tried to devise a system that integrates the clinicians horizontally so they can become teams, but vertically understand the problems of systems and regions and countries to make sure that when you solve this problem, you don't create new problems. So how do you make this, how do you make this doable? How do you make it affordable? How do you make it capable of being implemented? So the requirements are usually low cost, high flexibility, durable, rugged, because you don't know what situation is, to be more like a utility than some complicated technological device that, as you know, is prone to failure. Uh, so that's that's the approach we've taken. I think that's when we talk about the way to approach this is starting, what does the end user want? And is it user-friendly? Is it intuitive? And if that's the case, then you can begin to address what are manpower shortages everywhere, more pressing, just absent in many parts of the world or insufficient in much, right? So what we've devised as a system and I invite you all to participate in your own version is a manpower multiplier. How through, through virtual care, can you work with someone in a remote location with a you or their experience that you have a, a, a partnership to help them bring your expertise to them and learn in the process? They, in turn, as they train up, could have their own people that they manage, sort of a, a, a manpower pyramid that then can grow as each person becomes more capable. So it involves increasing access from existing assets and then upskilling people so that this knowledge gap is addressed because expertise is what's in short supply. Sometimes it's very basic, sometimes it isn't. And the more capable workforce you have through constant interaction, I think is, is, is extremely important. What you basically create is a knowledge network. You take knowledge where it resides, anywhere in the world, and bring it to people who need it on their terms to make this partnership work. In the process, build capability, don't just come and go, which happens much the well-intended and good results we have in the world, people come and do good things, but then they leave. And what about what happens later? This virtual care network that you could create would maintain that, that connection, build that connection, so it becomes more and more capable and then link with existing, with existing capabilities. So we find that a you are there perspective is essential, that what we settle for now are, are indirect ways, maybe phones, and, and that may be fine in certain circumstances, the key is to match the technology with the problem. You know, I always say if a letter works, send a letter. But for many cases, in particular, is, is, is to get that you are their experience and have the full, bring the full value of, say, a specialist, someone who's very experienced into that situation, you often need an immersive kind of experience. By immersive, I don't mean, you know, the, the, the immersive uh, um, virtual reality, but I mean an augmented reality where there's two things can happen. This is the other point, is that when we're, you're with telemedicine, Sometimes because of connectivity problems, you, you, you can't have real-time connection. So you also should have a store and forward so that this, can, that this partnership can occur even in areas with no or poor connectivity. And what, whatever you use should be basically geared to a low 3G environment. I know 5G is coming, but low 3G is much of the world, particularly where they need it most, or, or LTC. So having that flexibility, what kind of connectivity do you want, both in terms of 
technology, but also in terms of knowledge. So this asynchronous communication that you can do by store and forward allows the partnership to continue even in difficult situations. Then the third part is, you know, this is basically a knowledge network and much of this is predictable, right? Everything's different at times, but there are patterns that you can see. So if you have a device where you can store this information and they can call it down, they don't need to connect with someone, which creates two things, instant availability for the things that you know that they will need, be it wound care, or you go through your list, checklists, which we know drive great medicine, but often aren't used because they're not available and, and workflow. So it's about the workflow that you can build into this process to make sure that you have uniformity in care and you're not skipping things. And then the other is the asynchrony. As you know, when you're bringing somebody else in, somebody often is inconvenienced and this, and this timing is difficult. So with asynchrony with the store and forward, you can work out much like you would with the text message, what information needs to be, needs to be seen in what, in what time period. So that's the way I look at this is that we, we need to start with the soft piece, which is really the hard piece, which is what, what are you trying to accomplish? What workflow will enable that? And then how do you create that so it's, it's able to execute in difficult and different environments? So flexibility is key. Thank you, Pat. And um, I've got this slide up here from Nigeria. Just if you could just uh, just in one minute, tell us about the uh, these these implementations of the virtual care system that you're involved in. That would be uh, sure. That'd be great. So we started in Nigeria. I have a trusted partner there. But the idea was that we know that the world has this tremendous need and we need to demonstrate its efficacy in those in a real life environment. So in the case of Nigeria, we were able to use a low three energy environment, which you know, has its own challenges. And we, we were able to demonstrate rounding, teaching, proctoring, and um, consultation, and ambulance. Those are the kind of common scenarios. Same basic approach, right? But these nuances matter. And we did this at the Royal Dutch Shell Hospital in uh, Port Harcourt. The second uh, proof, proof were in times of crisis, we sent our devices over to Wuhan when the pandemic broke. And you can see that people had trouble. They didn't have the PPE, so they did other things. So in a crisis with easy implementation, the flexibility that we discussed and that you are there kind of experience, the senior physicians were able to be spared exposure to COVID and send others in and also save that, that, that scarce PPE and get care directly to the patient from an expert exactly as they would if they were present, but then overcoming the barriers of time and distance, right? They could be anywhere, anywhere in the country and come in and help. And likewise, be prevented from being exposed when, when it would be important to be able to avoid that. So that's a, a, yeah. important in this pandemic and the next one. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's great. I wanted to include those couple of real world case studies um, and, and use that as a segue to, to we're gonna, the discussion we're going to have now for the next 15 or, or 20 minutes. Um, Jefferson, I'm, we're, in, we're still unfortunately in the middle of this pandemic. And uh, you know, I, I tell my colleagues, I'm not sure it's even arrived in many places in the world, uh, less than 5% vaccinated in Africa and many other places. Um, what should we be doing now? What are some of the things that global experts in, in telehealth and virtual care should be really promoting um, and, and, and leveraging? What, what more can we do to, uh, to, 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 to ease the burden of this pandemic and also use this then as a sort of launch pad um, as, I, as I tried to, to set up for um, really making virtual care uh, part of the normal day-to-day uh, -day part of healthcare. Jefferson? Yeah, thank you, Dirk. Uh, well, I think there are some, so many things to do that uh, we have to, I have to select some of them. 
Yeah. But uh, in, in a broad approach, I would say that uh, countries uh, should start by bringing the policies that are needed uh, to the implementation of uh, telehealth and virtual care uh, in the public system and also in the private system as well. And for that, we need also people that have um, good knowledge and ability for, to manage uh, these systems and the services that are within it. And of course, there's the need of investments. Uh, this investment will have its uh, return uh, in, in many ways that we already know. And also awareness and uh, education, you know, for not only for, for patients, but also for health professionals and physicians that uh, uh, are still resistant or they are not uh, now willing to use this, uh, this approach. Uh, uh, can I give an example? In, in, in Brazil, uh, where I live, uh, we have, as in other country, any other country, a huge increase in uh, emotional, psychological uh, aspects of uh, the pandemic, you know, the burden that is bringing emotionally. We have psychologists doing a very good work on that. Uh, they are really increasing the number of teleconsultation support. But the psychiatrists, in turn, they are not very involved. They, of course, they use teleconsultation for their own private uh, patients, but in the public system and elsewhere, you don't have these uh, uh, services being provided. So I think this happens in, in other countries, uh, low and middle income countries as well. So I think these are some of the aspects that we should work on that we, so we could uh, uh, you know, uh, disseminate the benefits of uh, telehealth and virtual care in countries or regions and even within some parts of each country. Yeah, thank you very much for that. No, I was, uh, as I was reading some of this material about um, uh, Southeast Asia and, and, and Africa, I was thinking about your, your experience with training in Latin America, which I think in some ways is a little bit uh, further along in some of these uh, working with some physicians. So you know, I would encourage you and others, I know you're doing a lot of work in this area as well as to take some of those best practices. And uh, I know that's in part why we're on the call today. So that's great and appreciate that. Um, Pat, you're, uh, you're on the ground there working in a number of countries. Um, you know, I put up a list of the, the barriers that, uh, that, that were documented in Sub-Saharan Africa. Which of those are, are you sort of faced with most often, which, you know, if you could wave a magic wand and would want one thing to go away or have, what, what would that be? What, what, what do you see sort of on the ground? I see it everywhere that, you know, adults and institutions are, are hard to change. We, uh -huh. when under stress, we tend to double down on what we know, which is human nature. Um, what we have to accept is that virtual care done, done in an imaginative way is the answer. The West is just failing faster. That's all. Uh, we, we have to get in and change people's behaviors to reduce the disease load. Unless we do that, we'll just be chasing and losing the race. So how do you get into people's homes? How do you get to where they live? And to me, the first step, and this is why I, I believe it's such a critical part of this virtual care piece, is how do you get people inside the various communities who are trusted and then upskill them to bring the expertise to where people live? Until you do, we won't reverse this lifestyle. Of course, in many worlds, many parts of the world, maybe infection, malnutrition, and things like that. But the lifestyle is so important in, in creating this disease load. Can we bring people into the community remotely and, and address it where the diseases and the habits and so forth are learned and perpetuated 
and we can't go on repairing them. And yeah. if, we take, if we take full advantage of the educational piece, I mean, I think the way we educate people in medicine is, um, let's say, inefficient. You can take these experiences all around the world and bring them to the student who should be this, whose time is most valuable and say, what does he need to learn and how best to do that? Not what do we do, but what would optimize your learning so we can train people who, who, who can be the experts who can then help those who move into the community. It's the multiplier. If you don't multiply, we lose. We're adding right now and addition doesn't keep up with multiplication the way the disease load grows. Yep. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So um, I want to I want to shift gears here a little bit from barriers to opportunities. Um, you know, there is just a tremendous amount of activity happening in all of these countries, uh, not just uh, from from sort of overseas coming in, uh, but also a lot of uh, uh, wonderful homegrown uh, local uh, innovators, entrepreneurs um, who are who are doing great things. Um, so there may be some entrepreneurs uh, that listen to this. Uh, there may be some investors. Um, I wanted to take a minute to, to ask your opinion, and I've got some thoughts as well. We'll start with Jefferson. Um, where, where are the big opportunities? The way I frame this is, you know, we're all, we're old, all old enough to have nephews. If you've got a 25-year-old nephew who wants to start a digital health company, uh, where would you uh, direct him? What, where, where do you see some big opportunities uh, in this in this arena internationally? Yes, I can have a few, but uh, for a start, I think uh, one important aspect that I mentioned in my presentation is the fragmentation of information. You know, the uh, patient electronic records, you know, usually they are uh, in the hands of a hospital or of a health insurance company. Uh, or of a clinic and so on. So when the patient moves from one hospital to the other or moves from one city or from, even from one state, that information usually lost. I can tell you that in low and middle income, uh, low and middle income countries, this is very frequent. So I think we should uh, turn this phrase uh, that says uh, the patient is the owner of their uh, clinical or health record into really something that uh, the patient has it in how is his end. So something like, you know, one patient, one record, wherever he goes or she goes, this information is available. So if, uh, I mean, this could be something that is developed by, you know, uh, uh, the Minister of Health of a country or the State Secretary, uh, but uh, it could also be developed by uh, a startup, you know, mm -hmm. and this startup can offer its solution for the different uh, system, private or, or primary system, pri uh, sorry, public or private system. So I think that one uh, opportunity with that to be really uh, no, cloud-based, uh, patient-owned uh, information. So the patient is really who says, look, this is my password, or this is the password that a doctor can get into my information have some restrictions of some kind of information, whatever. And then uh, wherever he goes, uh, his uh, uh, record, clinical record, health record is within. Of course, there is a lot of things to, to do. Uh, and we have some examples in, in, in countries that I know, such as, the, uh, as England or Portugal, where in the primary care uh, setting, this is already being sold. So the physician and the patient have one screen a lot of things is happening in, in the back of that screen, you know, different systems and so on. But in the end, 
this is the only information. But this information still is kept within this health systems. And it's usually, usually not easy to the patient to get access to that right. if he goes to one place or the other. So I think this is one, as I said, we need to identify needs and bring yeah. solutions. So I think this is one opportunity for that. No, I, I think that's a great example in part because you know the other thing that shows up frequently on these barriers lists is the concern about privacy, the concern about security, uh, the concern about uh, people's data being you know outside of their control. So having that uh, having that centralized and having that control, I think, is exactly uh, right and and putting the patient sort of at their the individual at the center of things. Um, you know, I think there's a couple areas, and then I'll ask you as well, Pat, you know, that I see a real opportunity. Um, of course, um, uh, care at home, home health, uh, you know, remote patient monitoring, it's, it's becoming, um, you know, standard with, again, with the pandemic, this forced a lot as the aging population sort of forced a lot of people to stay at their homes, people didn't want to go to senior care. So I see, you know, all those technologies being developed. And then I think about, you know, rural areas uh, in underdeveloped countries um, where these could be adapted, culturally adapted um, uh, and, and utilized as well. Um, so I think that's a big area. I think the other one is, of course, FinTech, financial technology. Uh, lots of times these healthcare decisions are really a financial decision, um, buying insurance, paying for things. So I, I, I project a, a real sort of integration and merging of health tech and FinTech sort of as people are developing. And we've seen some great things out of um, Kenya, you know, with, uh, with uh, mobile payments. I think over 50% of all purchases are with mobile payments now in a number of uh, countries that you don't necessarily think of as technologically, technologically advanced. So uh, we'll keep an eye on those. Um, there's, there's, again, I think tremendous opportunity. Uh, Pat, do you have a, a comment on that? Yeah, it's it's um I have this practical bent. So, you know, how yeah, is good. it that we do an 80-20 rule or make a difference as quickly as possible? Um I, in our company, our thesis is the phone is the universal install base for healthcare in the future. Mm -hmm. And the question is uh, which how do, what do you put in it? And I and I would suggest that if everyone could come up with something simple, not something complex, you know, we have lots of EMRs. They're, they're prohibitively expensive and complex. And we have lots of personal health records. Can we together in organizations like this say, let's have something really basic. Who are you? What are your, what are your medical problems? What medications you're on? What procedures have you done? End of story, right? That's usually how medicine is practiced. And how does that become sort of a, a common coin that people can use? And to your point, Dirk, people uh, underestimate the difficulty of deciding uh, permissions. Who gets to see that? Because sometimes it might be politically dangerous. Um, they need to protect it. On the other hand, it needs to be readily available. So we looked at blockchain. We've been working on this for some time. What is the very, very minimum that allow people to use our system or others so we can all talk to each other and say, this is like a utility. Yeah. This is who you are. This is what you have. Nothing more, nothing less. It can link to others and use something like fire files or something like that that, that have common, um, common access and easy, easy to get to. I think that's where organizations like this can set the stage rather than waiting for others to do it. You know, if you want to change something, start with yourself. And I think we have the ability to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I think we're, we're, we're closing in on, on our time. I think we've got about another five or seven minutes. Um, Jefferson, do you want to, maybe we can talk, uh, I, I guess I'd like to cover two more things. Uh, one is, 
I'm sure we each have a personal aspirational vision for what we what we would see uh, this looking like, you know, five to 10 years from now. When I work with students or colleagues, I say, well, what do you want to be doing five years from now? What, what's the world going to look like? So I'll ask each of you that. And then I, I guess I'll, you know, and also you might add just sort of your parting words of wisdom for uh, people that may be, may be listening um, and you can, you can choose what that might be. So uh, Jefferson, do you have a, a, a thought on, on both those? Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, we, we, we uh, telemedicine is medicine. Telehealth, you know, is healthcare. So uh, probably in few years time, we are not going to stress so much these uh, words and definitions because these uh, solutions or these methods will be so integrated in our daily practice, you know, that it becomes something that's, you know, as you've got a stethoscope or if you've got something else uh, to help you or to help the physicians or health professions to take care of people, diagnosis uh, or treatment, uh, we have anything. So I think that uh, the incorporation of the daily life not only in hospitals or in clinics, but also in the patient's home. So you're gonna see more and more people being uh, taken care of in the comfort and the safety of their own houses. As we saw in this pandemic, you know, many things that uh, patient, it was usually going to physically to a clinic or to a hospital cannot be uh, uh, sought out in uh, his or her own so the care in the patient's home will be the focus and it's going to be also a big business and going to have not only uh, uh, devices, but all set of uh, things that could help the patient has the safety of his house regarding gases or anything else and about his health as well in their home. So uh, with that, we could, of course, having some some uh, uh, companies or some organizations uh, watching this patient in a private and a proper way and, and trying to avoid false alarms, but uh, having the continuity of care. You know, if you have a patient with uh, hypertension, you can see the film of his life, not only photos from specific moments, you know, uh, specific episodic and reactive situations, but you can take care of him or her uh, in the, this long run, identifying things that you cannot uh, see when you're just seeing a patient in an office or for uh, acute, uh, you know, in hospitalization. So I think uh, going to this direction will be something in the future. And of course, as you said, remote patient monitoring will increase, you know, a remote patient and follow up uh, anything that we define with. Uh, not only in moments of disease, but also in moments of uh, health promotion. I think this is something that will be uh, very easy. Of course, you have to always say about artificial intelligence that will help us, but a word of caution, you know, uh, artificial intelligence is not so intelligent as some people may say, you know, there's some hype about that, you know, uh, it's mathematical for us, you don't have uh, common sense, you don't have uh, all the intelligence that we have, but working together with physicians and health professionals, this could, you can achieve a tremendous uh, support for the decisions on diagnosis and on uh, therapeutics. But we should learn, we should know, that's why education is also important, 
to see if a solution or something is really delivering what it, it's promising. So yeah. wh what is the evidence? What is the evidence that such solution really uh, controls diabetes or helps to control diabetes and so on? We know several countries such as Germany that started before physicians can prescribe digital solutions, but they have to prove they are really uh, accurate if they go to diagnosis or effective if they go to treatment support. But the final world should be of the physician. The final world should be of the health professional. So health professions, and I'm coming back to my usual point as someone from the academic side, that uh, it has to learn all these aspects, it has to learn how to, uh, how to evaluate if a solution that says that has artificial intelligence, it's really delivering, and what's the risk of uh, false positives or false negatives? So the decision should uh, be, so this is, uh, a, a, could be not only artificial intelligence, but uh, intelligence that assists, assists intelligence for the physician profession, so you're gonna get a lot more. So I think these directions we will follow in the next few years. Thank you very much. That's an excellent vision. And I, I, I probably am going to steal your phrase, uh, the film of someone's life instead of the photos, because I really like that imagery. Uh, Pat, uh, what is your uh, vision for five to 10 years from now? Well, I think we're not going to change that much in five to 10 years. So we have to maximize what we have today. And the mm -hmm. intelligence that's underutilized is the stuff that resides in people's heads. Mm -hmm. So how you can project that to where it's need to train, educate, and change behaviors. And I think that if I were to start if I were in charge of the world's health, it would say, we're gonna start with the answer, which is where people live in their homes and their communities and recognize one size fits none. Different towns, different regions, different countries, different continents have different kinds of problems. There's of course overlap, but focus on what matters the most. Otherwise we'll end up with an academic enterprise which we're worrying about how to do things precisely and forgetting that things done good enough, well enough is good enough, right? So yep. we have to have both, right? Refine your approach, but understand, don't wait forever to do something that you know works. And that's where um, telehealth, not just telemedicine, can really reach into where people live and change their lives for the better. Now, my idea of Nirvana in the future is that we have information from all the sites that we know come in on people, all your preferences, all your biases, what you do, what you don't do, and have something as powerful as that, understanding all the aspects of things that influence your health, and make you just as addicted to that as you are some art of Facebook. Say, so, oh, here's something new about that pertains to me. Here's something I can make a change. Because if we can change our behaviors to minimize or eliminate our genetic and environmental risks that are in front of us, then we're in a different place. We'll be spending a lot more on things other than health where it's where things are needed. Thanks so much. Um, and I'll just close with a with a couple of um, a couple of words for the entrepreneurs, innovators, and those who are supporting them through investments. Uh, as as we close here, um, one of my one of the things I did over the last couple of years is um, I really wanted to understand uh, why so many digital health uh, innovations fail at the pilot stage. So, as many of, many of you have probably heard, death by pilot, pilotitis. I mean, there's great ideas they get out there and then they just don't scale. So I, uh, I interviewed about 120 people around the world, VCs, investors, purchasers of digital health, and a, a couple of things rose to the top. Uh, and, and I'll just share those. One is, as people are thinking about this, uh, one is make sure, and Pat, you mentioned this, make sure you truly understand the problem you're solving. People get fascinated with the technology, the shiny thing, um, and they sort of can't articulate 
what exact problem they're solving. Uh, another one that was frequently mentioned was how the physicians, providers, nurses, how they will use it. Uh, if this takes longer for a nurse, if this is more complicated, it's never gonna fly. This has to be uh, made more simple, has to be easier, easy to learn. Um, I'd say another one that rose up and up uh, frequently was who's gonna pay for it? Uh, so I'll you know, be talking with a, a, an early stage company, say that's a great technology idea, who's gonna pay for it? And I get this blank deer in the headlights stare. They said, well, the health plan should pay for it. And I say, the health plan should pay for it, but they probably won't. So if this is gonna be successful, if you're gonna invest in this, um, uh, be clear about that. Uh, and, and I would just say, finally, on the positive note, um, uh, companies only go out of business if they uh, give up. Or, 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 or uh, so persistence. I've seen many uh, successful entrepreneurs and innovators just keep pushing at it, pushing at it, pushing at it, pivoting and pivoting. And those are the ones we, we hear about today. So I encourage all of you out there to, to do that. Um, feel free to reach out to, I think, any, any one of the three of us. Um, uh, we'd love to hear from you uh, and look forward to working with you in the future. So I think I will close it there. Organizers, 